0: Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 231, 1917, Part 4. Last time, we discussed Vladimir Lenin's arrival at the Finland Station in Petrograd, along with his publication of the April Thesis. Today, we continue our journey through 1917, beginning on May 1st, and we are now officially switching calendars to the Gregorian from the Julian. Before we head to Petrograd, let's see what's going on in the rest of the world. The 1917 French army mutinies begin with over 30,000 soldiers refusing to go to the trenches at Missy-au-Bois. 3 girls claim to have seen an apparition of the Virgin Mary in Fatima, Portugal, In the United States, the Selective Service Act is passed, allowing the President to raise a National Army through a draft, and Philippe Pétain takes over as Commander-in-Chief of the French Army from Robert Nivelle. The Petrograd Soviet decided that it would celebrate the European May Day according to the Western calendar. All over Petrograd, workers were taking the day off to join in the festivities. Restaurants, shops, trams, taxis, offices, and other businesses were all shut down. Around 5 a.m., people began to gather in the middle of the city. Red was the color of the day, as banners and flags of red were being waved and carried through the streets. Morgan Phillips Price, a British MP visiting Russia, had this to say about the goings-on, It was not merely a labor demonstration although every socialist party and workmen's union in Russia was represented there, from the anarcho-syndicalists to most moderate-of-the-middle-class Democrats. It was not merely an international demonstration, although every nationality of what had been the Russian Empire was represented there. It was really a great religious festival in which the whole human race was invited to commemorate the Brotherhood of Man. Our old friend, Maurice Paleologue, was sad on this day as he had been recalled to France. He had spent the past three years watching as Russia was devolving. As Helen Rappaport puts it in her book, Caught in the Revolution, quote, His years in Russia left him with little to be optimistic about. The Russian Revolution was composed of elements too discordant, illogical, subconscious, and ignorant for anyone to judge at the present time what its historical significance may be or its power of self-diffusion. It was at this time the provisional government made a huge mistake, something the Bolsheviks would take advantage of. Foreign Minister Pavel Milyukov sent a cable message to the Allies confirming the government's commitment to the war effort. The message known as the Milyukov Note, was leaked by the Bolsheviks, who knew it would antagonize the Petrograd Soviet. To make matters worse, Milyokov would give a press conference where he bragged about the cable, telling the reporters that because America had entered the war, victory was in their grasp. If they stayed in the war, they would gain reparations, which would likely include something many of the Russian czars yearned for— the annexation of the former birthplace of orthodoxy, Constantinople. Protesters returned to the streets, many pushed on by agents of the Bolsheviks. Violent clashes began to take its toll on the people of Petrograd. Four days after Milyokov made his beliefs known, the government was forced to back down. It was too late. The violence could not be put back into the bag. The American war photographer, Donald Thompson, along with his translator, Boris, worked their way from one mob to another. They saw two groups approach each other, one anarchist, the other pro-government clash. As Thompson put it, quote, Someone let fly with a gun, and for a few minutes, it was simply hell on that corner, with everyone laying down flat on the pavement. Six people were killed and with more than a dozen injured. This continued throughout the night. The same disorder we saw prior to the abdication of the Tsar in February, we see in May in Petrograd throughout the Rus- and throughout the Russian Empire. Members of the provisional government were straining under the pressure put on them by the people in the streets. Negly Farson, an import-export agent in Petrograd, had this to say about what he was seeing. Quote, a bevy of factory girls marching arm in arm, their shawl-enveloped heads tilting skywards, their placid slav faces lighted with a look of perfect ecstasy, and they sang as if inspired the hymn of the revolution. And then I saw it, a huge black banner with a white skull and crossbones, which seemed to be grinning over the words, welcome, anarchy. There was something loathsome about it, as if it were a flaunting invitation to indulge in all sorts of beastliness. They also noted that the influence that Vladimir Lenin had on the mobs was growing. Arnaud Dosch fleurot an American journalist, wrote this about the Bolshevik leader, quote, He had hardly been back three weeks and the effect of his activities were to be seen on every side. He supplied a head and a directive to the more violent revolutionists who wanted to seize power themselves. Remember in the previous episode, there was no clear-cut leader of the February Revolution. What Lenin did was to provide that leadership. Maurice Paleologue, on leaving Petrograd, thought that the revolutionaries were on the verge of taking over Russia. He believed that the, quote, final bankruptcy of Russian liberalism and the approaching triumph of the Soviet, weep, my holy Russia, weep. On May 3rd, the first cracks in the provisional government showed through. Milyokov, as I had mentioned, and then also the minister of war, Alexander Ivanovich Guchkov, resigned. The latter was replaced by Alexander Kerensky he would be charged with galvanizing the war effort with a new Russian offensive on the Eastern Front. This would prove to be the death knell for the provisional government. The streets of Petrograd were chaotic. Edward Heald, a monitor for an international committee, looking into the treatment of German and Austrian POWs, wrote, Anarchy raises her finger higher and higher. Pauline Crosley, the wife of a U.S. naval attache, complained about having to hire four maids because they spent much of their time in line for things like, quote, bread, meat, fish, milk, butter, eggs, kerosene, and candles. The supply problems that caused the czar to advocate were still present in Petrograd and most of Russia. We now moved into the month of June. The first Pulitzer Prizes were awarded. The draft begins in the United States. The Battle of Messines begins with the British Army detonating 24 ammonial mines under the German lines, killing 10,000 in the deadliest deliberate non-nuclear made explosion in history. And the first major German bombing raid on London by fixed-wing aircraft leaves 162 dead and 432 injured. The Russian army was broken. Morale was at an all-time low. There were over 5.5 million casualties suffered, mostly by men. The reason I mention mostly is the fact that there was a women's death battalion set up, led by Maria Bochkareva. A few more were formed over the coming months to help bolster the army. It wouldn't make a difference. The people were fed up with the war effort. Desertions were getting bigger by the day, with many of the men just heading home with a revolutionary fervor that would grow angrier by the day. The heat of June began to hit, with the paralysis within the local government failing to provide simple services like sewage, things began to get worse. Not only was there still a food shortage, there was an outbreak of dysentery and cholera. Hotels were unable to feed their guests. Restaurants who had food raised their prices to unaffordable levels for the general public. A small meal would set you back the equivalent of $27 in today's money, and a bottle of champagne could garner $300. Seeking to continue garnering some sympathy for the war effort, Alexander Kerensky headed out to the Southwestern Front, ordering a massive artillery barrage on July 1st. Then an assault was planned in Galicia against combined forces of Germany and Austria-Hungary. It would be known as the Kerensky Offensive. It would be a total disaster. By the end of the month, the Russian lines were broken. And as one historian writes, quote, The only limit to the German advance was the lack of logistical means to occupy more territory. Petrograd was the scene of massive protests once again anti-war fever was being stoked by Lenin and his fellow Bolsheviks. As Florence Harper writes after the members of the Root Mission were told to move to Finland, quote, They knew that if the mission only waited a little while longer, they would see an exhibition of rioting that would convince its members how weak the provisional government actually was. The Root Mission was a nine-man American delegation who was sent by President Woodrow Wilson to gauge the Russian government's belief in continuing the war effort. The Russian people viewed the group as nice people, but completely unable to grasp the situation in Russia, especially in Petrograd. So, As I mentioned, we're in July, so let's find out what's happening around the world. In East St. Louis, Illinois, labor riots claimed the lives of 250 people. Greece joined the Allied war effort, Arab troops led by Lawrence of Arabia capture the coastal sound of Aqaba from the Ottoman Empire. Finland declares itself independent from the Russian Empire, something that the provisional government absolutely refused to accept. Finally, the Battle of Passchendaele begins the Allied offensive in Flanders Field. Kronstadt, the naval base and island fortress, was as Rappaport writes about the place during the February Revolution, quote, The scene of some of the most savage violence when 30,000 sailors had run riot, the admiral and 68 officers, the cream of the Imperial Navy, had been massacred in a brutal orgy of killing, seen as retaliation from the harsh discipline the men had endured under the czarist system. It would continue to be the hotbed of revolutionary militancy. In July, Florence Harper and Donald Thompson wanted to see what was going on there. They were warned that while they likely would not be allowed to land, if they did, it would be a very dangerous place to be. When they arrived, they were actually greeted and shown around by a local Bolshevik leader, Tvarshish Parchevsky. The Bolsheviks knew that they could use the men when they decided to stage their own revolution. Harper and Thompson continued to take pictures and listen to stories of murder and mayhem as they went from house to house. They wanted to meet Vladimir Lenin and were taken to the Kuschenka mansion where he was staying. After waiting for two hours, Lenin came out to have his picture taken. But when he was told they were Americans, he said to their translator Boris, according to Thompson, quote, he would have nothing to do with me and that we better leave Petrograd. The region was getting more and more unstable. In the middle of July, a number of cadet ministers resigned because of the provisional government's concession on an issue to the demands of the Mensheviks and social revolutionary ministers. The issue was the autonomy of Ukraine. The members of the cadet party believed that this would cause a collapse of the Russian Empire, as it would curge. Others to join suit. The Bolsheviks saw this as an opportunity to begin a revolution and take control of the government. Leon Trotsky, the powerful orator, lit a fire in the soldiers from Kronstadt and the Pavlovsky Regiment to begin an armed demonstration. It was a fire that they quickly lost control of. Fighting began on July 18th, spreading throughout Petrograd the government called in the Cossacks to squash the insurrection. No one knows how many people were killed during this week of rioting, with estimates as low as 400 and as high as 7,000. Kerensky called in troops from the front to bolster the defenses. One of their targets were the Bolsheviks, as they were being blamed for inciting the insurrection. Lenin was the main target of the incoming troops. He would be spirited away to a safe house. Lenin and fellow Bolshevik Grigory Zinoviev escaped Petrograd in disguise, fearing execution. The government uncovered documents that Lenin left behind, showing him to be receiving funding from the German general staff. This was passed on to the men in the rebellious army, which turned the tide against the Bolsheviks. By the end of the month, known as the July Days, the Bolsheviks were on the run. Trotsky was arrested, but Lenin made it out by shaving his famous beard, dressing as a workman, and heading off to Helsinki. Kerensky was under pressure to arrest as many of the Bolsheviks as possible. His government's inability to capture Lenin would haunt them. It was talked about within the ambassadorial circle that in hindsight, had Kerensky captured Lenin, and had him executed for treason, the October Revolution would never have taken place. A large funeral was planned for the 20 Cossacks who died defending Petrograd. It was meant to bolster confidence in the provisional government and serve as a warning to the revolutionaries. Over a million people attended the deeply orthodox service. Kerensky was now the prime minister. Some had noted that the charismatic leader was acting like the next Napoleon. As the writer Jesse Kenny noted when talking about Kerensky, quote, I did not have the impression of a man dedicated to one end in the way that Lenin had, or Plakhanov, or Mrs. Pankhurst. He'd been a fine lawyer, was an enthusiast, an orator of eloquence, but did not have the restraint over himself that the others possessed. There was vacillation here, a man open to his passion and his moods. Quite obviously, he was no match for Lenin, who, relentless and dominating, would ride mercilessly over everything, everyone in his path. By the end of July, Petrograd was like an armed camp. There was no effective police force, just a quickly put together militia. The provisional government even with the Bolsheviks out of the way for the moment, was frayed and slowly falling apart, and there was a threat to the capital from the advancing Germans. There were major defeats of the Russian army, leading to one million men retreating back into Russia. Things were getting so bad in Petrograd that many of the foreigners we've had eyewitness accounts from were leaving. David Thompson decided to hightail it out, the city in August. His last comment was, quote, I see Russia going to hell as a country never went before. Thompson was right. Things were going to hell. It's now August 1917. So what's going on in the world? The Green Corn Rebellion, an uprising by several hundred farmers against the World War I draft, takes place in central Oklahoma. A general strike begins in Spain It's crushed in three days with 70 dead, hundreds wounded, and 2,000 arrests. The Republic of China declares war on Germany and Austria-Hungary. The Great Thessaloniki Fire of 1917 in Greece destroys 32% of the city, leaving 70,000 individuals homeless, and the Canadian government passes a bill allowing conscription beginning the draft. Well, what's going on with Tsar Nicholas? Well, Nicholas Romanov and the rest of his family had just been removed from his residence at Sarskoye Selo, put on a train, and sent to western Siberia. They would stay under heavy guard at the governor's house in Tobolsk. The Romanov family would remain there for the next nine months before their ill-fated trip to Ekaterinburg, where they would all be executed. What was noted by many observers was how little the people in Russia cared. Everyone was more concerned about finding basic needs like food and drink. The Romanovs were no longer in charge and no longer in the hearts and minds of the people. The new people who arrived, replacing some of the witnesses we've used in previous episodes, were aghast at the hotel's conditions they tried to stay at. The Hotel de France was known as the Buggery, due to the infestations of insects. The Hotel De was considered a step up, but the hotel manager warned his guests that they could be fed on some days and on others not so much. What struck me while researching this month's events was how people were self-isolating since February because of the dangers that awaited them if they went out into the streets. It was not only near impossible to feed the regular inhabitants of cities like Petrograd and Moscow, but it was made even more difficult because of all the war refugees and the soldiers who had abandoned their posts. One of the visiting members of a Red Cross mission, Raymond Robbins, which was put together to provide medicines and other hospital supplies, said this about Petrograd The capital was, quote, a day to day affair. Uncertainty is everywhere the outlook is stormy in the extreme. At the beginning of August, Robbins, along with a few members of the task force, met with Kerensky and noted how utterly worn out he was. They noted that the provisional government was filled with, quote, men who are dreamers with responsibility and no capacity to bring their dream into being now that they have the power. On August 8th, The war effort received terrible news. The Baltic port of Riga fell to the Germans. There were no shots fired. The Russian troops stationed there simply walked away. The German army was now only 350 miles away from the capital. Petrograd was now in the war zone, and the provisional government was incapable of protecting the city. It was here that we introduce a new character to the discussion, General Lavra Kornilov, his presence would lead to the release of the Bolsheviks from prison, arm them, and eventually lead to the collapse of the provisional government and the rise of Bolsheviks to power. Lavra Kornilov was by all accounts a deeply patriotic man, supposedly of Cossack origin. I say supposedly because some argue he was either Kazakh, Polish, Kalmyk, or Kyrgyz, Whatever his nationality, Kornilov entered the local military academy when he was 15, moving on to the Mikhailovsky Artillery School in St. Petersburg in 1889 at the age of 19. Kornilov moved up through the ranks quite rapidly. He served with honor in the Russo-Japanese War. During World War I, Kornilov was captured by the Austro-Hungarian forces in 1915 being a major general at the time, made him a high-value prisoner. In July 1916, he escaped prison, making it back to Russia to serve at the capital. It was Kornilov who placed the royal family under house arrest in 1917. In June of that same year, he was named Supreme Commander-in-Chief of the Provisional Government's Armed Forces. After the disastrous July days, revolutionary attempt at taking over the government, Kornilov demanded that he be given complete control of the army, both on the front and at home. He believed that Kerensky was no longer capable of keeping the country together. Kornilov also detested the Soviets and wanted them crushed. A conference was put together to see if Kerensky and Kornilov could work together to bring stability to the situation. As Sir George Buchanan, the British ambassador to Russia, put it, quote, Kerensky cannot hope to retrieve the military situation without Kornilov, who is the only man capable of controlling the army. While Kornilov cannot dispense with Kerensky, who, in spite of his waning popularity, is the man best fitted to appeal to the masses and secure their acceptance of the drastic measures which must be taken in the rear if the army is to face a fourth winter campaign. The so-called Moscow Conference failed to achieve any agreement between the two men. On August 14th, Kornilov called on Kerensky to resign and give him control. He He began to move towards Petrograd with his troops with the intent of smashing the anarchist movement as well as crushing the Bolsheviks. He was quoted as saying, It is time to hand the German supporters and spies led by Lenin. And we must destroy the Soviets so they can never assemble again. When news of the threat reached the city, panic ensued. It was fully expected that Kornilov and his troops would enter the city and a full-blown battle would ensue, threatening everyone. Many who could afford to leave the city did. Sir George Buchanan and the new French ambassador, Joseph Nulens, were summoned to the Russian Foreign Office to tell them that Kornilov was marching with his troops on Petrograd. Petrograd was in uproar. Kerensky was backed into a corner, and the decision he was to make would have grave consequences come October. The prime minister made a deal with the Bolsheviks to come to his aid. To top it off, all the weapons that had been confiscating during the July days were returned. Not only that, but more weapons were provided to the revolutionaries. Leon Trotsky thought it was a good idea to deal with the provisional government at this time, believing that it would strengthen the Bolsheviks for a future takeover. Then, as if by magic, the threat posed by Kornilov vanished. On August 17th, just three days after the panic began, Kornilov was stopped. Not by military uh, action, but by the pro-Bolshevik railway workers. They refused to allow his troops to move via the train system. It is not guaranteed that they allowed Kornilov to move his men into Petrograd. Now, they may have taken control if that happened. In fact, another advance guard who did make it refused to fight against Kerensky and the Petrograd Soviet. Indeed, they joined them. Kerensky then ordered the arrest of Kornilov. British Embassy Councilor Francis Lindley thought that Kerensky was, quote, torn between the ear of an aiding, a counter-revolutionary movement, and his honest desire to assert authority of the government. And, like all good socialists in a similar position, he preferred his party loyalty to the good of his country. It was the end of him, or as William Ogenic. The British or excuse me the Dutch ambassador to Russia said that Kerensky quote had nervous fear of being replaced by Kornilov and this made him act with reckless and fateful impulsiveness Around August 18th Kornilov was arrested and 3 days later on the 21st Trotsky and the rest of the imprisoned Bolshevik leaders were released from prison as ordered by Kerensky the Prime Minister assumed total command of the army, making himself a virtual dictator. Bolshevik support grew with the news. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time as we finish up the incredible year of 1917. So until next time, Dasvidaniya y Spasibo bolshoya.